Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, here with your other co-host, the one and only TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Hello. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah. And uh, we want to do a big shout out before anything else to all of our patrons who make this show possible because we are poor and cannot afford the basic necessities to do this show. You guys are great. Thank you for your help. Um, And today we are joined by two special guests, uh, one Professor Moreland, Chris Moreland, and Sister Rose, uh, both guests you should know before, really excited about today's topic. Right. Uh, So today we are interviewing Professor Chris Moreland, uh, who teaches women in religion at uh, UNCW, about women's role in the Catholic Church. Then Sister Rose will join in the second half to give us some firsthand perspective as a woman in a leadership role with the Catholic Church. So it should be a nice little one too. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of a different format for everybody. Um, we did want to review audience engagement. Uh, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we did a poll and somebody won. You can win a poll, it turns out. Um, for Monday and Monday, we asked everybody, uh, do you call it a buggy or a shopping cart? Um, I, I want to say it was like six people said cart, nine people said buggy. Uh, the one that matters is there was one person who added his own option for shopping vessel. So I, I, I'm just going to go ahead and declare that the winner of who, that um, that poll. Who was it? Which? Uh, it was Russell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Russell is our longest standing patron. Thank you very much. Um, so today, silly question. You know, we always like to start with one um, kind of ease the tension of all the kind of tense stuff we talk about from time to time. Uh, you know, silliness is a, is a form of unity, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Um and TJ and I will answer first, give you time to think about it, Professor Moylan. Um, if you had to name a sports team after a mythical animal, that's not a word, is it? Okay, anyway, which animal and sport would you choose? All right. Um, TJ, do you want to answer first? I can. Uh, first all right. of all, yes, mythical is a word. Uh, Thank you. Also, I think someone has already, like, the right answer already exists. Uh, the NHL has a brand new team starting this season called the Seattle Kraken. And that oh, is that perfect. Is a, yeah, that's pretty great. Like, I don't think um, it gets better than that combination of things. So I'm just going to steal the real life answer of uh, hockey <laughs> and the Kraken. I'm going to go with Griffin and American football. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Professor Moreland, uh, which... Mythical animal and which uh, sport? Um, it would be manticore, and the sport would be some form of synchronized skydiving. Mm, I like it. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And um, uh, Sister Rose, you can answer if you'd like, or you well, could pass. you know, I have been thinking about this, and you Perfect. stole my answer. Did I really? Yes, I was thinking of the Griffin. Actually, my first thought, but it's not a team sport. I was thinking about Pegasus and Steeplechase. Um, oh. But yes, I I did consider the Griffin. I like the lion's body with the eagle's talons and head and wings. Yeah, yeah. that's I'm, pretty funny. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I got to cool admit, creature. my immediate thought was Griffin, and then I realized. The Kraken thing. So, <laughs> man, I, I'm surprised I didn't think Kraken because you know, as much as I'm into pirate lore, I should have. Yeah, Josh has a, a drawing of the Kraken in his office. Yeah, 
yeah. just it's in case featured on a couple episodes. Didn't know. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's start the show uh, with a low-hanging fruit. Uh, Chris, Mr. Professor Moreland, uh, how did yes. you come to teach women in religion? So um, one of my uh, strongest advocates and a mutual friend of mine and Sister Rose, uh, Dr. Diana Pasolka, um, I had my first class with her when I was a freshman at UNCW, and it was like academic love at first sight, and we're very much in the <laughs> same vein. And she taught women in religion. And so I became one of her groupies and just started taking every class that she taught. Um, and eventually, um, there was a position open as an adjunct at UNCW, and they had me teach women in religion, which is PAR 225, and intro to religion, which is PAR 103. So I built off of her foundation and then added in some of the materials that I had learned um, from my own education at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley and from my master's program at UNCW. So it's a really nice melding of both of our approaches. Nice. Very nice. Um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, what, what all religions do you cover in this class? I, you know, I assume it's not just Christian. Sure. We start off with a section on methodology to make sure that we are approaching the material from an academic perspective. And I am very interested in making sure that they use a lot of different methodologies. So I don't force my students to like use anything that's that's terribly ideological. I think that's a myopic approach. After we get that down and we discuss the various methodologies that they can use, um, we start off with Christianity. Then we do um, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, Native American uh, religions, and we also do, um, we do Islam. We finish up with Islam. Hmm. Interesting. That's quite the list. Yeah, yeah. It's and, a uh, lot. I imagine quite the diversity in um, how some of those different religions treat that. Uh, just going through some of my own learnings, because uh, for those who don't know, I, I was a student of world religion at UNCW for a small amount of time. But so I, I kind of have an idea of what he might be talking about. And um, But since this is not a world religion class, we won't dig too deep into that. But um, he kind of stole my next question was going to be how you organize the class. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll let TJ go ahead and do his bit. All right. Uh, so most of our audience is Protestant. Uh, how would you say Protestant and Catholic churches most differ in respect to women's leadership? Well, that depends very much on what Protestant denomination we're talking about. Very different. Um, <laughs> something that I learned continually from my students is even within a single denomination, most of my students tend to be Southern Baptist or tend to be uh, non-denominational sort of evangelical, sort of these new megachurches. There's so much variety, even within them. I have many students who are shocked to read about women in Christianity like um, uh, Tekla or Perpetua and Felicity or Mary of Egypt or um, Hildegard of Bingen because they go to they go to churches within their denomination that do not allow any form of women's leadership maybe beyond um, taking care of children in the nursery and setting up for the church suppers. I have other students who have female pastors uh, or they will sort of um, 
they will sort of differentiate that, yeah, the women are running everything in the background. They're like the office managers and the educators, but they're not um, preaching. I would say that in the Catholic Church, the way things really operate these days is that the women are running everything and they're doing a very, very good <laughs> job at it too. We, we couldn't live with, we couldn't survive without them. Um, they are the heads of theology departments. They are um, running newspapers. They are, they're doing pretty much everything except um, the priestly ministry. But they are still participating in liturgical ministries like lecturing, ushering, being a Eucharistic minister, uh, running places like the Newman Center. Um, there are a few, there are a few parishes where the pastoral administrator is a woman, um, and is really the one sort of running things, uh, and doing absolutely everything except, uh, celebrating mass. Hmm. Now I know, um, this is just an extra question and probably a dumb question. Um, but I know there are people who probably haven't listened this far or at all who would look at this episode and be like, oh, women in religion. This is just another feminist kind of thing. You know, that people just make their assumptions about things. And um, why would you say for people who are like that or, you know, people who know people like that, why does it matter to study and think about women in religion? Well, we're all created in the image of God. And because of that, we have inherent human dignity. Uh, women are, you know, half of the, half of the world. And it's just incredibly myopic to not study their contributions and to study their history. Um, I wouldn't say that I, I acquaint my students with some aspects of feminist methodology because I believe that they should be allowed to use within reason what methodologies are most helpful for them. But I would definitely say that my standard approach, the one that I use, is not so much feminism, but what they call women's studies methodology, which is really to sort of put women front and center rather than something that you study on the side as sort of like obscure exotic objects. Like they're always there. And if they aren't there, what is the silence telling you? What is their lack of presence telling you? So, Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal when half the world's not there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, so one thing that's particularly interesting to and I think most Protestant people who don't mind thinking about these kinds of things is how differently Mother Mary is treated in your church than and churches like ours. Um, the Catholic Church puts a much I, I would say a much higher significance on Mother Mary than the Protestant Church. Um, what can you tell us about the the Catholic Church's views of the mother of Jesus. So she is not co-redemptrix. That is, remember how Father Jonathan said that there are these private theological opinions that are given by some monks and bishops, and they can be considered and they can be held by the faithful, but they're not binding and they're subject to debate and dialogue. The issue with co-redemptrix is one of those. It's already had its heyday. Um, it got a lot of media traction in the 90s, and because of that, I think people have the false idea that this is some sort of mandatory Catholic teaching. That's not the case. We do believe that Mary uh, is a, a mediatrix, that she helps mediate grace. Mary is 
all about her son. Salvation comes only from Jesus Christ. Mary is teaches us Christians how to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, she she said yes to God at the Annunciation. She was there throughout his entire ministry. She was present at Pentecost. She prayed with the church. Uh, and we believe that she continues to intercede for the church and intercede for us uh, in heaven, uh, in that she is a repository of graces, but the graces flow from Jesus Christ. Mary is, um, you know, in the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Mary is often a very good way that people who for some reason, like, get this image of God is like angry and Jesus is just like going to judge them. I think Mary is sort of a way for those people to grow in their faith, but she always, just like John the Baptist, points to Jesus Christ. Um, and she has been venerated, not a, not worshipped, but venerated, honored, and respected for her example and for the love that she shows for us for as long as we can remember mm. in the church. So how does that perspective on Mary impact how the church treats women as a whole? It's interesting. Um, it's an interesting question. Mary is considered in many cases to be the new mother of the human race. So whereas Eve in Genesis listens to, you know, the snake, eats the apple, and sin comes into the world. Mary, by her saying yes to God, gives birth, give, essentially rebirths the human race and um, becomes an instrumental part of the plan of divine salvation. Um, and, and so this means that, um, that women from the very beginning have a critical role to play in the church and that they are to be treated with, you know, respect and to be treated, um, to be reminded that they are created in the image and likeness of God. They're not to be subjugated. They are not to be, um, you know, they're not to be treated as less than at all. Mm. Yeah. Um, one, one, one more thing about Mary before we move on. Um, and he's already said this. I just want to restate it, or, or what's it? Say say it again for those in the back. What what is it, TJ? That the kids it's say that. now? None of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, which he he has said. Uh, they do not believe you can be saved through Mary, and the Catholic Church does not believe does or does not worship Mary. Right? No, we do not. We venerate yeah. her. In this is where theology and where Sister Rose is really skilled. There are three forms of worship, and the highest form of worship, adoration, is reserved exclusively for the work for the Triune God, for the worship of the Holy Trinity. We venerate and we ask Mary to help us be better Christians. We ask Mary to help us love her son more because she was his mother. She knows him very well. And she um she teaches us, you know, by her example, how we should live as Christians by saying yes to God and by also suffering, being part of the suffering that we experience in this world um, due to our fidelity to the gospel. 
Right. Uh, so I believe it was in our our previous episode together. Uh, you brought up an extremely interesting argument that we wanted to discuss briefly before Sister Rose joins in. Uh, sure. You told us that you believe women's ordination should not be the litmus test for women's progression in the church. Could you tell us what you what that means for us and uh, Abs- some of absolutely. the implications of that? So I think that many people that are not terribly familiar with Catholicism um, and particularly people who are irreligious, they look at the lack of a female clergy as a lack of female power or a lack of female um, advancement in the church. And I would say that is not a good litmus test because all you have to do is walk around any chancery office, which is a bishop's office, and you'll see who's running the show. Um, I think it also, it also neglects the very, very important role that women have played in the, in particularly in the past 50 years, uh, in theology, public engagement, the, it's, it is – I think the issue of women's ordination deforms things. It's very much like how when I was studying the Second Vatican Council, I was explicitly forbidden from reading about Humanae Vitae because it it's just like this black hole and it just soaks up everything and it deforms your image of history. In the same way, I think that if all you do is focus on women's ordination, you're neglecting the advancements and the power that women have uh, in the contemporary Catholic Church and have always had. Um, you know, there were there were uh, saints during the Middle Ages who wrote letters to the Pope and told him things that they disagreed with. Um, there were women in the Middle Ages who ruled uh, their own little principalities and fiefdoms um, as abbesses and prioresses. So this power has always been there, and I think that, yeah, I think that the focus too much on women's ordination just fits this very historically uh, inaccurate narrative that religion is just this patriarchal force that's been grinding people down from time immemorial. Yeah, it's um, it, it reminds me of when you've read a book and then watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie just skips over like one single thing or like a couple things and it just ruins the whole movie for you. Everybody else might enjoy it. And you're just like, man, because no, you're just like so focused on that one thing. You missed the bigger picture. Oh, um, completely. Yeah. Yeah. I like the it's, way you. Yeah. It's, it's, that. I did that for the first Harry Potter movie. And then I, I watched all the rest of the movies before I read the books after that. Because it was just a better way to do it. <laughs> um, but in our churches. Um, Protestant churches, that is, uh, the argument over women's leadership is often just boiled down to either complementarianism or egalitarianism. Um, you know, whether you're, we're talking about in the household or women preachers, it's do women complement us in the sense that, you know, men are the head of the house and then women under them or are men and women equal, more or less? Um, just the egalitarian. There's no head. Um, what of these views do you think is more in line with Catholic thinking today? I think that complementarianism is more in view, but throughout history and even in the present day, if men do not take up what they are supposed to do, 
then it often will fall to women to pick up their slack, which seems to be a trend. Um, <laughs> you know, I think of, you know, for example, you know, for most of history, warfare has been something that has been conducted by men. But we also read in the Old Testament about um, Deborah and Judith, and we read about Joan of Arc. Um, and so I, I think that God can call people to tasks that are irrespective of gender like that, um, if the situation warrants it. But I think that I don't, I, 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 I think that equal in dignity, equal in the, um, the fact that we're all created in the image and likeness of God is really where the equality comes down to, but not so much in equality of roles. It is okay for it is okay for men to do certain things and for women to do certain things and that can be negotiated um within a family structure that can be negotiated within the church um i would say that most people are pretty pragmatic about it these days um and don't get too hung up on that question it's pretty yeah, free, I, um... it's pretty free flowing i'd say now, uh, before we move on, just really quick, just for my own understanding's sake, um, is there any particular like official Catholic doctrine? Like, has anything been official tradition that the household has to be ran a certain way as far as a head of a house or anything like that, or is that just? I would defer to Sister. I would defer to Sister Rose on that one. Um, I would say that a good place to look would be John Paul II's documents. Um, the Second Vatican Council also talked about the role of women, um, I think, in Lumen Gentium. So there have been um, – John Paul II was particularly interested in exploring the feminine genius and the feminine contribution. Um, like what are some unique capabilities that women have that, you know, particularly in terms of – education, uh, mothership. And that doesn't mean that men can't educate, doesn't mean that men can't play a very important role in the family. But he was really interested in sort of evoking some of the um, the genius, some of the distinct characteristics um, that the church needs to, um, that the church needs, you know, from women. Gotcha. But yeah, I would, I would ask Sister Rose a little more about that. What if either of you know, what century was um, John Paul II? I think you said it right. Oh, uh, he died in 2005, I believe. Okay, um, so that's fairly recent. He was pope from 1979 um, to 2005, if I recall correctly. And he was the pope I grew up with. And it was sort of like how Elizabeth II is just the queen. He was mm -hmm. yeah. the pope. And so his death was very hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Like how David Tennant is the doctor. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, that's a, as good a transition as any to introduce our other special guest of the day, uh, Sister Rose. Uh, you have been lurking here, listening, hopefully. Uh, and do you have anything to add to what you've said or what we've said so far? Um, you know, just following up on what uh, the what Chris was just talking about. You know, John Paul II did his dissertation. He, he had a PhD in philosophy on the theology of, of the body. And he really developed further the whole sense of complementarity. 
Um, and there's also another great 20th century a theologian, uh, Ernst von Balthasar, who also mm-hmm. spoke a lot about the, the Marian principle and, uh, and the sense of complementarity. Um, where that becomes problematic when it's taken to an extreme where sex is becomes like an ontological principle of male and female nature that's airtight, um, it often can become an obstacle for women and understanding of women and their personal growth and their um, their critical intellect. Um, it's not what it's not what St. John Paul is saying, but it is often a way that it's misunderstood. I think a lot of women who are in the church, who are active, who are ministering the church, tend to lean towards a more egalitarian anthropology of partnership, you know, that, re- that reflects the differences of uh, male and female while refusing to stereotype gifts that are freely given. That each of us is given, each of us is created in the image of God, and each of us is given gifts. And um, for me, in my particular vocation as a Catholic sister, woman religious, um, we're not part of the hierarchy of the church. And as you know, the hierarchy is is all male. Um, we have more of a prophetic role in the church. Uh, we, we are called into community uh, with, with a given charism. And um, as apostolic women, which means active women as opposed to contemplative women, um, you know, we seek to live out the gospel, um, you know, in the marketplace, um, in the world. And so if you look at um, the history of, for example, women religious in the United States alone, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Are you? Okay. I've heard things. Yes, you've heard a few things. There have been a few, um, you know, major research uh, breakthroughs that have taken place at the Mayo Clinic. Did you know that it was started by Franciscan sisters? Really? Crazy. Yeah. Um, In the history of the U.S., many of the hospital systems that you find around the country were actually started by uh, sisters who were, um, you know, working in the field of nursing and medicine. Uh, There are also there are communities of sisters who work in the field of social work. For example, did you know? In Wilmington, North Carolina, the domestic violence shelter was established by sisters. Wow. No, no idea. Okay. Um, And then in terms of education, there are a number of of elementary schools, high schools, and universities around the, the, the country that were founded and run by religious women, by sisters. I did know that one. Yeah, Sorry. so <laughs> I just need to feel like I knew something. <laughs> <laughs> but my my point simply is, women in the church have been called religious women. Okay, when I say religious women, I'm talking about women who have re- responded to a particular call to consecrated life. Okay, who historically 
had the advantage of education. First PhD in computer science was um, earned by a religious sister. Um, hmm. Their contributions in every academic field. Okay, what happened was women entered convents and they were able to get an education in a time when women were typically teachers, nurses, or um, homemakers. Um, and so women have contributed greatly to living out the gospel call to love and to serve one another um, in a myriad of ways. Since the Second Vatican II, uh, Vatican Council rather, um, there's been a call, the, the church recognizes that we are, there's a universal call to holiness, that all men and women are called. And that are they're called to a vocation, whether that be to ordained ministry, to consecrated life, men and women called to consecrated life. There are all there's also a call to lay people, and we recognize that as a vocation in the church. And so, if you go to any Catholic theologate um, now, you will find lay men and women who are being professionally trained, theologically trained, to be leaders in the church. Now, all that being said, there is this hierarchy and there is a clerical culture. And I think that that clerical culture is being examined now because what I think we have discovered is that um, the absence of women within that hierarchy has brought about circumstances in the church that has led it astray and that hmm. I think that the more women are involved, um, the more men and women are involved together, partnering together to build the church, it becomes a healthier church. Yeah. All right. You know, um, yeah. And, and one thing uh, you were, you were talking about, um, different situations and different roles people play in different situations. And um, I, want, I want to say, regardless of how complementarian you may be, listener, there are definitely some situations where the woman should be the head. If you have seen how ADHD I can be, there are some days where I absolutely need to say, hey, you, you, you need to decide what we're doing right now because I'm not going to focus on literally anything at all. So, you know, there are, there are what, what's the scripture say? There's a time and a season for everything in them. Yeah. Roles are not as confined as sometimes we try to make them. And I think it has a lot to do with giftedness. You know, we're given gifts. We're freely given gifts. And I think married couples are becoming freer to say, you know, what are my, what are my strong, you know, suit? What's, what am I less good at? And there, you know, and there is a negotiation that is taking place within family life. You know, I think there's yeah. that recognition that some not everybody is given the stereotypical, stereotypical male gifts or female gifts that we, you know, that we are, you know, all gifted in many different ways. And what we are called to is to become the people that God intended each one of us to be, you know, created in the image of God, but yet created uniquely. Yeah. All right, I could I could shout hallelujah, but uh, you know we have me and TJ are Pentecostal, so I don't I don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, 
so Sister Rose, uh, what has your experience been like as a leader in the Catholic Church? Well, now, again, we'd have to define church. Are we talking about the hierarchy? Are we talking about the institution? Or are we talking about the people of God? Or all of the above? Because they're all ways of understanding church. Um, as a woman religious, working within my congregation, I, uh, you, you guys know I wear a second hat. I'm actually on the leadership team of my congregation. And we are an international congregation. So uh, when I'm not in Wilmington and there is no pandemic, um, <laughs> I am in France in tour at our generally, where we try to guide an international congregation that is on four continents, um, where we are responding to the needs of God's people. Uh, you know, I've mentioned, I think, in, you know, we have sisters in the Congo, uh, where we are responding to health care, where um, faith formation and education, especially of young girls, uh, where we're also running an orphanage uh, for girls who have been left on the street. Um, our work is greatly respected, uh, supported. Um, the church recognizes that we are living out our charism. The, the church hierarchy is recognizing that. Sometimes I think women religious have the experience that when they're working for the hierarchy within a position within a diocese, um, there is this sense that father always knows best. Um, it's always striking to me, especially here at UNCW, um, when students come in the house and they have a question of scripture or theology and they'll immediately default to my colleague, Father Greg, uh, when in fact I have probably more theological training. But that's the default, at, you know, that you you oh you ask Father. It it does not occur to students that I might be theologically trained. Now, I think they see me as the administrator, chief cook, and bottle washer. Um, but you know, they're hesitant. And then it's always a bit of a surprise. And I think Chris can attest to this. Um, when I respond to a question and it's like, oh. Hey everyone. We just want to take a quick break. Let you know all the many ways that you could support the whole church podcast. Hey, on- hey Josh, that's going to take too long. Uh, okay. Well, could you list all the ways that you can think of for mm-hmm. them to support us in 10 seconds or less? Yeah. Uh, subscribe to the show wherever you listen rate us on apple Podcasts or pod chaser support us on patreon our cash app is in the show notes subscribe to the newsletter and rate the episode all right yeah that, that sounds and good share to the episode i guess we should let them get back to it then mm-hmm. all right y'all enjoy yeah i have spent uh, probably many hours just asking sister rose questions in the um catholic campus ministries house there at uncw because <laughs> um yeah, before I met you, I really didn't know anything about the Catholic Church. And um, and I, I want to say she asked, what what do we mean by church? Um, and there are always multiple things you can mean by that word. Uh, usually what I mean is the people. And um, in, in this instance, you know, uh, Sister Rose and I are part of different churches in the sense that I'm Pentecostal and she's Catholic. But in the church is in the people, the whole church, if you will. I would always consider Sister Rose one of my leaders. And, uh, you know, if she told me something, I said I needed to reexamine something, I'm going to listen. 
So I had a I had a funny experience um, one uh, about a couple years ago. We were having the graduation mass here um, for the students, and it was a December graduation. And we had a number of students who were finishing, and so we always recognized them at our liturgy. And so I had asked one of the priests in uh, the area if he would be the celebrant for that mass. And, you know, in, within a Catholic church, the unspoken rule of thumb is that if you're going to be the celebrant, you're always there a half hour ahead of time, you know, so that you can hmm. recollect yourself and, you know, prepare yourself to enter into the, the you know, the liturgy. And this particular priest was very is a very gifted homilist and I and had done a lot of work with university students. So I was really kind of happy that he was coming. And not only that, we had the parent families of these students. And um, I was surprised that he wasn't here a half hour before. And then it was 20 minutes. And I thought, well, he doesn't live that far away. And I was just about to call him and my phone rang and he said, um, I'm supposed to be the celebrant at your liturgy. And I said, yes, you are. He said, you know, I've transferred my calendar onto my iPhone for the first time, uh, you know, a few months earlier. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, my alarm went off to remind me that I was going to be the celebrant. He said, but I'm in Raleigh. Which, oh. as you well know, is two hours away. I said, oh. He said, Rose, you're going to have to do this. Now, we do have within the church um, we a way of having a communion service when a priest is not available. And so the first thing I did was to check the tabernacle to see if we had sufficient uh, consecrated hosts. Then I went to the choir to explain to them that we were going to do something very different. And then I went to see what the readings were because um, I, he, I was put in a position where I was going to give a reflection on the readings. Mm. And so um, after a prayer to the Holy Spirit, um, I told the, the choir director to follow my lead. And we did the first part of the liturgy, the liturgy of the word. And after the gospel, I said that I was going to offer some reflection and proceeded to do that. And one of the professors was sitting in the back and he had two young men in front of him. And one guy says, I didn't think she could give a homily. The other one says, well, she is. And then <laughs> he told me afterwards when I finished the other one turned to it back to the first and said, and it's the best one I've ever heard. <laughs> I believe it. I um, absolutely believe it. <laughs> you know, I, I when I was in divinity school, I was trained in homiletics. But as you know, right now within uh, the church, in the Catholic church, um, unless it's a situation like the one I just described where there's a communion service and um, – kind of an emergency situation, um, the preaching is left to priests and deacons. Now, what's really interesting about that is there is a commission looking at um, the role of women deacons in the church. And we know about Phoebe in Romans. So we know they've been deacons since the apostolic age. 
And we can look, there's a historian by the name of Gary Macy. And he, as he says, I have no skin in the game. I'm just kind of interested in the question. So he started an investigation of any citations or documentation of women deacons in the church. And they existed up to the 12th century. Hmm. And so there is um, a movement to look at the role of women deacons in the Catholic Church. And part of the obstacle is that we people associate diaconate with a step on the way to priesthood. Hmm. And the permanent deacons of the early church had very distinct vocations and missions than than the, the, the church leader themselves, you know, and so that's not the issue. We'd have many men in the church who are, are permanent deacons. And I would argue we have many women in the church who function in, in terms of the, the, the defined role of a deacon. They're just not ordained to the diaconate. But hmm. as I said, the church, the, the, the Rome is currently, there is a commission that's working on, you know, on studying the question, and we'll see where it goes. Um, yeah. The last thing I would say to you is uh, it, it might not have struck you as rather significant, but a good friend of my congregation, Sister Natalie Broca, is um, a Zavarian sister from France, and she was just named as the undersecretary of the Synod of Bishops in Rome which makes her a voting member of the Synod, which is a first. So, wow. you know, the church moves. Um, it moves slowly, but surely. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, those of us who are committed church women continue our ministry because we know who we are and we know whose we are and we know why we are here. And that's to make Jesus Christ known and loved. And so that's what I give my life to. Praise God. Praise God. Um, and for, for those of our, our listeners who are from lower liturgical churches like uh, TJ and I, um, could, could either of you just give a quick definition of what is a deacon? So we can kind of distinguish that from priest. Chris, you want to do it? Yes, please. No, you do you want to do it? Um, sure. Um, I'd be glad to. Um, okay, so from my perspective and understanding, a deacon is a is a member of the clergy who assists with things like baptisms, homilies. They can recite. They can um, deliver the gospel. They can do everything essentially on the altar except consecrate bread and wine. They can't hear confessions. Uh, but traditionally, throughout the history of the church. Deacons dealt with social services. Um, during the early church, they were the ones that ministered to the orphans, the widows, and the poor. One of the most famous deacons, a guy named St. Lawrence, was burned um, on a grill for, uh, for defending the church. And for he was asked, where are all the riches of the church? And he brought all of the poor and the widows and the orphans to the Romans. And the Romans were like, you're mocking us. Where's your gold and silver? And he said, no, these orphans, these women, these uh, these poor people are the treasures of the church. So there's always been that sort of ministry involved. 
uh, particularly in the early church, like what Sister Rose is talking about, deaconesses played a very imperative role in preparing women for baptism uh, because, you know, baptism was done unclothed at the time and you wanted to respect, uh, you know, you wanted to be appropriate. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a pretty solid reason to do that, man. Um, and I would, you know, it's it's interesting, Chris, how you chose to 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 characterize or describe that role, because the latter, the service, mm-hmm. is the primary vocation of the permanent deacon. Yep. And so mm. you see, what makes it confusing is that we also have what we call transitional deacons. Yep. And the transitional deacon is a man who finishes seminary. And then is is ordained to the diaconate as one of the orders towards priesthood. And those deacons typically were serving at the altar, okay, with the priest. And and it was an idea of you had you were an altar server, you would learned a little bit more about what was going on in the sanctuary. The transitional deacon was serving helping the priest at mass because he's learning, because he's going to be doing that. He it was going to um, give being given the opportunity to preach um, because he was in training and formation to become a priest. So it was the transitional deacons who were serving at the altar and the permanent deacons role um, historically was that of service and charitable works. What has so, happened in recent time is because of the the shortage of priests, the permanent diaconate has be has been revitalized, and for a lot of men, it's very attractive. That I think for some of them, they're more attracted to their serving at at the altar as deacon, and less to the service, the social service that was traditionally their hmm. vocation. But it's interesting and it's evolving. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's still evolving. That's pretty interesting. It sounds like the one was basically an internship and they might should have had different terms for that, make it less <laughs> confusing. <laughs> but well, if do you I want know? to get even more confusing, there are, there's actually something called the subdiaconate. Uh, uh-huh. In the Eastern Catholic churches, yeah, and it still exists in institutes that are dedicated to the traditional Latin Mass. Um, and it'd be fun sometime to bring Father Jonathan back on to talk about the role of deacons in the Eastern Orthodox Church. But that's a that is All for right. another another session. conversation. Y'all have a deal. Yeah. Y'all, you have a deal. We'll do it. <laughs> that's yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we have but, deacons in uh, our church, but they are vastly different. Yeah, it's so uh, it's not really. Most people don't even know we have them. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> uh, we we do need to kind of rush through a couple questions so we can start wrapping up here. But um, I, I did want to ask Professor Moreland, what what has some of your experiences been like with women leaders in the church? Uh, I'm here because of them. Like it's instrument. They've been instrumental. Amen. They um, from my very early childhood, uh, I was taught the faith by my mother and my grandmother. Uh, we grew up in a very Catholic household. Uh, she was always very um, encouraging of my religious interests. Um, Sister Rose has known me from when I was like, yay tall. Um, so she goes back with our family a long ways. Um, I would definitely say 
people like Sister Rose and Dr. Pasolka and, you know, those two in particular have been instrumental in my faith. They have had impact, outsized impacts in term of, in terms of my academic, personal, professional, and spiritual growth. Um, Amen. Yes, absolutely. Sister Rose has been um, a, an incredible example to me. Um, and so is Dr. Pasolka. And there's other, there's other women in religion, um, you know, in the church that I worked with out in the Bay Area that were just phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Margaret Turek was wonderful. Um, I have had uniformly positive experiences, and I am beyond grateful. Uh, for the impact that they've had on my life. Um, I also really appreciate, you know, Sister Rose talks about the prophetic dimension of women uh, in the church. And Sister Rose has been very prophetic with me. She's one of the few people, even my mother doesn't get this um, privilege. Sister Rose is one of the few people who can tell me if I'm going in the wrong direction, if I'm full of it. And she never does it in a way to put me in my place or to be like, look at me, I'm the boss. It is It comes from a place of love and it comes from a place where she is intent on making sure I don't do something foolish that will hurt me or hurt someone else. And uh, Dr. Pasolka plays that role as well. Uh, and yeah. they use it sparingly and effectively. So when they speak, I listen. Um, Amen. Yeah. And I think we need, I think that, like Sister Rose was saying, if there was more opportunity for women to provide that correction in the hierarchical church, yeah, maybe some th there would be a lot of things that would be a lot better. Um, kind of reminded me of uh, Achilla and Priscilla there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, some some of some of what they might have done. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's um. It, it turns out this episode was actually just a celebration of Sister Rose, so everybody just <laughs> messaged her a little embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but in all seriousness, uh, I, I love some of those um, examples you're talking about and some of the people you named. Um, if our listeners want to send us in some of their own stories of stuff, of um, ways that women in the church have helped them, we'd probably share it on air. We we love that stuff. Right. So mm. this next question, I'm going to ask both of you, and it might seem a little odd that I'm asking both of you. Uh, but what is the best way forward for women in the church? And uh, I don't know who to ask to go first. So, uh, Sister Rose. We have her cameras off. Let's play rock, paper, scissors. Uh, guess who won? Yeah. I guess Sister Rose already won. She's too quick on the draw. <laughs> I think what's important for women in order to stand in their own integrity um, as faith-filled women is to find their place where their gifts are appreciated and where they, you know, where they are welcomed. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me of the scripture where Jesus, you know, can't go back to his hometown, you know. Mm. Um, you know, there are um, some church leaders who have some very narrow views of the role of women and haven't had a lot of experience um, working with women, uh, especially those who don't have a lot of outside work experience. Um, you know, they go and went right to the seminary, which was all male, and then they went, 
you know, into the priesthood. So um, I think you have to find the place where you can grow in your own faith and share your gifts um, and shake the dust where you can't. Um, and sometimes that's hard. Uh, you know, I could say you pick your battles because there are there are there are places where the gifts of women, though, I think Chris is right. Um, it, it is women who keep the church running. Um, but there are places where their, their gifts are less appreciated. So, you know, you use your gifts, uh, for the glory of God, for the, for the, um, bringing about of the kingdom, um, in the best way you can. The other important thing is to be comfortable in your own skin and women bring their gifts to the table and you don't have to be defensive about that. You don't have to, you know, explain yourself. Uh, just be the person that God created you to be. And I do think time and history um, and uh, necessity uh, will bring about uh, even more involvement of women in the church if the, if the Catholic Church is going to uh, perdure. Yeah, that's probably true for all churches, mm -hmm. honestly. Um is it possible? Oh, I'm sorry, Professor Moreland, you, you didn't get to answer that question. I didn't mean to cut you off. I would pretty much just piggyback on what Sister Rose said. Um, I would also say that one way forward for women in the church is really to be authentic and to continue to grow like we're all called to grow in our spiritual development and the development of virtues. I think that um, from what I have seen in my own subjective experience, when women leaders in the church are both very confident, they know what they know, and humble, not false humility, but true humility, and they know what they don't know. And if they are honest about those two things, then it really creates really it creates working relationships and it also opens up some opportunities for maybe some men in the church who as sister rose said sometimes maybe they're just condescending towards women and that's not okay at all maybe some other times maybe they had some you know maybe have to delve a little deeper have they had a bad experience with someone who was in leadership that was female maybe they've got issues in their childhood so when you really open up those conversations, um, that's really important. Other thing I'd say is, and I think this applies to anyone, even people who are irreligious, whatever evil's been done to you, don't replicate it. So don't try to get back at whatever's happened to you. If you've been oppressed or subjugated, don't replicate it to the next generation. You know, don't, um, don't try to make, Think, don't try to even the score because that's really not what we're called to do as Christians. We're not called to own people or to get back for all of the bad things that maybe we've experienced. Yeah, what I'm hearing is uh, Professor Moreland's telling all Christians to not be like Eminem, which pro probably good advice. No. Um, yeah. Um, is it possible to include more women in unity with those in the church who – believe the Bible says that women shouldn't have any role over men whatsoever. And should we even try to have unity with people who believe that? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Moreland, do you want to you want to try try take a crack at that one first? Or? Oh, yeah, that's a difficult question. I would say that I'm always whenever someone comes in with an opinion that is very divergent from mine, I try to find commonalities and I try to to sort of transcend the question rather than meeting it with opposites. So sometimes Hmm. people might come in and be like, well, you know, this is the what this is what the Bible says about that. And instead of attacking them or shutting them down, you start exploring it. And maybe in some ways in that conversation, you find out that actually women are playing a leadership role in their church, in their household, but they're just not naming it. And um, so that that often is a place where you can find some more unity. Um, Thankfully, I haven't had many conversations with people that are so close minded to have for women having any role in the church that um, we've had to sever the conversation or anything. I would imagine that that would be a different experience for a lot of women in the church. And also something I want to note very clearly is that has a lot to do with the fact that I am an educated professional working in the United States. Um, I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who come from other countries have vastly different experiences and Mm -hmm. may encounter some of those patriarchal or misogynistic attitudes that are increasingly rare in the United States, even among, even among, um, fundamentalist, uh, and evangelical Protestants. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty rare that someone's that dogmatic on the situation, but, um, yeah, like, like you said, I, I, I do believe usually asking more questions, is just a really practical thing to do in most cases where you're having a hard time finding unity. Um, sister Rose, uh, same question. Sh- should we even try to have unity, with people who don't believe women should have any role over men. And if we should try, how, how can we try? Well, you know, I, I would agree. I haven't encountered anyone who's been that quite dogmatic about it. Um, what my experience has been is, you know, to live by example. Um, you know, if, if it's, if they're, Exclusion of women is scripturally based. I'm curious to know more about how they understand the scripture. Um, you know, and I'd be interested in, you know, knowing how they respond to Jesus's attitude towards women and, you know, that, that conversation. Uh, I also think sometimes when people are that exclusionary of a class of, or a group of people, um, you know, that I suspect that there are other isms involved as well. So um, I think the best way is not to be confrontational because that goes nowhere. Um, but I will continue to witness as best I can as a woman leader in the church um, and happy to engage that conversation about why I do what I do and how I do what I do. Um you know, I think, it, you know, we all, we, you know, look to the day when we are all united. Um, but uh, it's not an easy road. Yeah. 
Yeah, y'all, y'all kind of <laughs> kind of jumped the gun on me. Um, you know, I was going to ask, as I always do, if you had any practical, you know, something tangible people could do after listening to this podcast. And, and I feel like you, you kind of hit it on the nose there. Um, asking more questions, right? Be willing to engage in conversations. That those those are the practical things. Like that's how you find unity in this kind of situation. So, uh, thank thank you both for that and for your yeah. time. And I do What's... think, and I do think that whole notion of coming out of your silo to engage those who you perceive as different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Pope Francis talks about, um, you know, a, a time of encounter. You know that we that we not only encounter people, we listen to their stories and seeking understanding and common ground, you know, right. and it's not just, um, you know, a futile, you know, exercise that we have to enter into those conversations and those encounters with an open mind, an open heart and, you know, see what is to see and hear what is to hear. Right. So with that being said, all of it, the past hour, uh, we'd like to get to our God moment segment, which Many of you are probably familiar with. Some of you might not be. Uh, both of you are familiar with. Uh, it's just a moment where, or a segment where we like to think of a moment from the recent past, preferably. If you want to go way back, you can, of course. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a moment of challenge, worship, blessing, all that stuff. I like to make Josh go first. Uh, Josh, is there a moment recently where uh, you've seen God in your life? Yeah, um, a, a lot, naturally. Um, I'll just pick one out. Um, yesterday, I was I went to the Harris Teeter over by my work, and my old boss from when I worked at Harris Teeter had transferred there and was over the frozen department there. And he saw me, and you know, he said hi and stuff. And, you know, I was blessed to be reunited with him. He's a great guy. But also I remember kind of feeling challenged thinking of, oh, no, what, what have I been doing in the store? Did I knock anything over? Did I not pick it up? Have I been acting Christian? Because I know he knows that, you know, I do different things with the church and I don't want him to think anything that I'm misrepresenting God. And I just remember immediately going through my own actions and just kind of being challenged of, hey, people are always watching. So, uh, yeah, that'll be mine. All right, uh, I'll go next. Give our esteemed guests plenty of time to think. Uh, my God moment would be, I think that Josh was given the gift of prophecy about an hour and a half ago. He said, wait, you're under a tornado warning. And at the time I wasn't, but now I am. So thank you, Josh. <laughs> uh, but really, I'm sorry. On a real note, uh, uh, recently we had a new person come into work who was just very genuinely interested in this podcast which doesn't happen often because it's <laughs> just not the kind of world we live in and uh ashley for listening thank you it means a lot and uh, we're glad you're here and stayed the whole time so <laughs> uh, chris do you have a god moment for us yes um Two, I'm going to choose two. So one is that I'm very pleased to say that my father, uh, thanks to y'all's prayers and the mercy and grace of God and the skilled doctors that he inspired, uh, came out of his gallbladder surgery. Um, he was in the hospital for 17 days. He's not only back to normal, he's better than normal because he lost a lot of weight. And, uh, 
He uh, got some other, they also discovered some other issues that can be easily resolved medication. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, second God moment, I would say, is that um, it was going to be a challenge. There was a, there was a potential that in the work that I do for the university, that there was going to be a conflict between my deeply held values and what the institution wanted to do. And that was entirely averted. Um, and so (laughs) I, I was able to sort of not have to engage in any confrontation about that. And I'm very, I'm very pleased that, that I will be able to maintain my integrity and maintain my faith while also fulfilling what the university expects me to do. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Great news. Awesome. Sweet. Uh, Sister Rose, do you have a God moment for us? I do have a God moment, but you know, I'm of Irish descent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is a little bit of a story. Can you take a little story first? I would not. It's up to my. Right. I wouldn't be expecting anything else after someone says, you know, I'm Irish. So as a sister, um, part of our tradition, our custom is that we make eight-day silent retreats every year. And I just made my retreat um, a few weeks ago. And when we do that, you have a spiritual director who you meet with for about 20 minutes each day, and you talk about what's happening in your prayer. And so um, this director had said to me, you know, how do you image or where do you see Christ in your life, you know? And so I I started talking about the sense of Christ walking alongside me that I see through the periphery of my vision. And then the retreat went on further, and I was reflecting on, because as you guys know, I'm visually impaired, and I was some reason talking to my spiritual director about how I cross streets and that I identify a person and I stand a half step behind them uh, with the cars on the uh, their, one side of them and me on the other side so that when they cross the street, I walk a half step behind and I'm able to cross streets. And she said, how do you know who to pick? And I said, well, that's a good question. I don't know. And so I started reflecting on the question. And I thought, you know, that kind of was an image of of Christ for me, you know, walking a half step ahead of me, kind of guiding me you know, through life's dangers as well as joys and so forth. So I found some great consolation in that. But then each day I would walk down a mile to a beach and I would swim for an hour, you know, parallel to to the shore. And I had done that one day towards the end of the retreat. And, um, I finished and I was just sort of floating out, um, you know, There was a beach where there were children playing and people sunbathing. And I was just out in the deep water and it was just my head exposed with my goggles. And I was content with the universe and I was hearing the children's voices. And all of a sudden I heard a little voice say, let's go out to the old lady. And so I looked around to see who they were talking about and then realized they were talking about me with my platinum white hair, which, by the way, I came with. Um, 
Anyway, <laughs> so I became attentive to these children. And I also knew that I was in the water that was too deep for me to stand. So I slowly started to swim towards the shore. And I called to the little girls and I said, can you swim? And one of them said, yes, I can swim. The other one said, I'm learning. And the other one just kept jumping and giggling. I thought, hmm. So I went a little further in. So I was closer to them. And the one came swimming out to me and she grabbed hold of my arm and my shoulder and was giggling with delight. And it was just this wonderful moment. And then the other one was dog paddling. She got very close and she went back. She got very close and she went back. And then she came the third time and grabbed my hand and then grabbed my arm and my other shoulder. And the and I kept moving closer to the shore. And then the third one came and they were all giggles. And then the mother started to call them. And so I said, oh, we better go in. So we went in and I saw the mother and I, and I said, yeah, they were swim They wanted to come out to the old lady. So she said, oh, we called them in because they would cling to you. And without hesitation, I said to I said to the mothers, let the children come. Oh. And then in the depths of my being, I thought, oh, my. We are Christ for one another. The divine dwells within us and allows us infinite numbers of God moments, graced moments. That I went back to my spiritual director and I said, you know, when we be you asked me that question, Christ was a companion walking at my side. And then Christ was a companion who was a half step ahead of me. And then I had this profound realization or or sense, I, it's not a new thought, but I felt it in a profound way, that Christ dwells within each of us. And that was my God. Man, incredible. So I, I like how it went from TJ had a God moment. I had a bunch, but was just going to share one. Chris had too many, so we had to share two. And then Ro, Sister Rose shared infinite God moments. Mm. All right. Like so, yeah, 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 it's just not a progression saying, there. I'm not saying I called it, but that is the reason I did not ask Sister Rose to go first. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. Uh, share it with anyone, really. We're not picky. Uh, <laughs> and thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, and... uh Sister Rose, uh, Professor Moreland, uh, where can people find both of you and follow your ministries or, you know, find a CCM at their school? Well, um, if there's a public university, there's probably a Newman Center nearby. I'm located at the UNCW Catholic Student Center here on the edge of campus. Um, but you can look them up um, just by Googling or um, checking diocesan websites we do have a website. We do also have Facebook and Instagram. All right. Chris? And that is the same place that I would refer you to the same place. I keep a pretty low profile. Um, I work full-time as an academic advisor, so that takes up a great deal of my time. And I teach, um, so that's where I pretty much put my energies. Um and I don't really have an internet presence because um, of the way things have been going in this country. And I 
really prefer to work quietly and work um, in a ministry of service to the students that are right here in front of me um, and the problems that I can see right outside of, you know, my office door. So that's where I really put my emphasis and let the work of internet ministry um, to great people like y'all. Um, so yeah, if um, I would just, I, I know there's plenty of places for people to get resources like that. So um, that is one, that is one thing that I really haven't stepped into yet. <laughs> well, thanks for the compliment. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You and I actually share much the same philosophy on uh, how we would like to prioritize our work. And yet I am on this podcast. So <laughs> yes. that's how that went for me. But anyway, uh, future guests for the show, uh, we have Dr. Greg Allison, who will be returning to talk oh, about his new book, good. Embodied Living as a Whole People in a Fractured World. Uh, Amy Watson of Wednesdays with Watson will also be returning. Uh, Dr. Duval and Dr. Hayes, authors of Grasping God's Word, a hands-on approach to reading, interpreting, and applying the Bible. And of course, at the end of the season, we will have Francis Chan. Yeah, he doesn't know, but it is going to happen. Right. When Francis Chan is on the show, season one ends. So, thank you for your time, and uh, come back next week.